From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. It was a beautiful thing to see the two women standing behind the altar in the place where I would usually stand, lighting these candles as the names of the dead were called. You know, in a sense, they were presiding at the table. And I thought, that is so much the gospel. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today on our show, we're delighted to welcome back the Reverend Heidi Newmark. She is the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Manhattan and the executive director and co-founder of Trinity Place Shelter for Homeless Queer Youth and Young Adults. She's been on the show before talking about her writing, and today we're going to be talking about her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of of Trump. Pastor Newmark was a founding member of South Bronx Churches, an ecumenical community organizing group that trained local leaders, built hundreds of low-cost homes, and established a top-ranked high school. She grew up in New Jersey and completed her undergraduate studies at Brown University, received her Master's in Divinity from the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia. She also spent a year studying at the Ecumenical Seminary in Argentina, where she also worked with Servicio Paz y Justia, a human rights organization. Pastor Heidi Newmark, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Well, I'd like to start our conversation with a story that you tell briefly in the middle of your book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. It's a story where you are taking away the vestments of the altar on Holy Thursday, which is right before Good Friday as we head into the Easter celebrations. And you notice a reaction of a young child in your church, a young girl. And uh, I would like, if we could, to start there. Talk to me about that moment, about noticing that young girl's reaction and what you learned about that young girl in the process of trying to figure out why she was reacting that way. Sure. Just a little background of it. First, we have a dinner remembering Jesus's last dinner on before he died. So it's the last supper. We have the dinner downstairs. And then we go upstairs into the sanctuary for the stripping of the altar. And I noticed that this little girl had started to cry. And the year before, there had been a number of children that came to the dinner on their own without their parents and had gotten into, were kind of fighting a little bit with each other. And so I thought, oh, dear, because we tried to avoid that this time. And I thought, oh, dear, something happened, you know, somebody they had some kind of fight. And then I, I didn't see her. And another, I asked another child, what's going on? And they looked at me and said, you know, pastor. And I'm like, no, no, what happened? And she's like, pastor, you know, I'm thinking, I, I don't know. And finally, I saw the little girl. And I said, what happened? And she came into my office. And she said, it happened to me. What she was talking about was that week, a couple of days before, immigration agents had broken down their door and thrown her father to the floor, arrested him, and taken him away. And she hadn't seen him since then, and she didn't know where he was, and adults weren't talking to her about it. And what was so interesting to me was that the, the stripping of the altar was done without explanation, except that we remember what happened to Jesus on the, the night before he was arrested. But for her, it was so real. It totally connected with her 
lived experience. I mean, all we were doing was removing the cloths from the altar. She instantly made that visceral connection. And I thought, you know, these children had a deeper sense of how our liturgy, how our worship was connecting to their lived experience than I did. You know, they're going, you know, pastor. And I'm thinking, no, what are you talking about? But that's what happened. And she ran home and her mother told me later, she said, it happened to Jesus too. That's the profound moment that I really wanted my listeners to hear, because to me, that sums up so much of what the ministry at Trinity Lutheran Church of Manhattan has been through the years. You really are trying to take this idea of the gospel that we learn every time that we come back and we hear stories read from the Bible or when we hear a sermon. But what I love about what you do is that you are continually trying to to turn that around and to show that it has a real-world application with a political importance. And to me, I think that this this begins to open up the wider question of what you're trying to get at in your book, Sanctuary. And so just for a moment, let me make sure that folks understand that they're listening to Things Not Seen, that I'm David Dalton, that today we're talking to the Reverend Heidi B. Newmark about her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. And so this is where I want to move in our conversation, because you are looking at in the structure of this book the liturgical year i mean if i were to talk to the listeners about the structure of the book the book really begins with christmas and it moves through what i would consider to be the major seasons of the church year epiphany ash wednesday lent holy week all the way to advent and in the process of this, as you as you reflect on each of these seasons of the liturgical year, you are finding aspects from your ministry that touch on real-world moments and situations where we see the humanness of Jesus, but also the impact of some of the cruelty and some of the politics that are playing out, particularly in the last few years. So I want to ask you, first of all, just about the structure of the book and how you came to decide to make it both be this kind of reflection reflective arching over of the liturgical year with this also really deep, impactful, on-the-ground concreteness? Well, for me, that's really, that's what the church is. The church is the body of Christ, and Jesus's, if Jesus's ministry and gospel and words and actions don't connect to our lived reality, you know, I'm not interested in them. They're not just talking about a pie in the sky. They're talking about real life. And Jesus was very, Jesus was part, you know, part of his humanity. His incarnation was in a particular social, economic, political context. And Jesus, yes, Jesus loved all people, but as Jesus took sides. He took sides with those who were being marginalized, who were who were treated without love. And I believe we're called to do that too. And people, so I think it's important for people in church, in shaping worship and the seasons of worship to, that can help us connect the God that we worship and the lives the lives that, that we live help connect Sunday with, with the rest of the week. And one of the ways that happens is in seeing how the seasons, some churches celebrate in the church year, connect with the seasons of our lives. And we're in a very, you know, a very intense season right now. And the seasons of the church year speak to that. You mentioned just now that we're in a very intense season, and you call out the kind of focus of that intensity on the cover of your book, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. And for the reader who encounters this book, Trump, as I was encountering it as a reader, sort of looms over and haunts many aspects of this book. So, for example, at the beginning of every chapter, there's <laughs> there's a tweet from President Trump. And throughout, oftentimes, there will be reference to President Trump and some of his policies and his administration's policies. So did you think of this as really uh, being a, a kind of response 
to the moment of Trump? Or is Trump, for you in this particular moment, gesturing towards something bigger? In the Bible, we might sometimes hear it referred to as the principalities and powers, or something greater than simply Trump the man. Like, Help me understand what role Trump is playing in this book for you. Absolutely the second. Trump is one sign of a big one, but of of principalities and powers. I mean, I think, well, every story in that book, every chapter of my book, I, I mean, a lot of it tells stories about our life in, in this congregation and community long before Trump rose to power. And really, in one way, I could have written the book without even mentioning Trump, except that in the past few years, Trump's has been very much on my mind, but all of the evil and yeah, the evil and the racism and the sexism and the transphobia and all, and the divisions that Trump foments, he didn't invent any of that at all. Obviously, he foments it. He uses it for his own purposes. But I mean, he'd like to think everything's about him, but it's not about him. It was there before he he was elected. And whatever happens in this election, it's it's still going to be there and need to be need to be resisted and defeated. It's not just about Trump at all. Well, as we're looking at this, I think some readers might feel confused and some might feel offended by the possibility of a Christian minister calling out the president in a very, what they might consider to be a politicized way. So just briefly before we go to break, how would you respond to the criticism that it's not the place of a pastor to be political in this way, to speak out in this way, to get involved in in saying that Trump is associated in some way with evil in this way? What What would be your response? My response would be that Jesus called out injustice in his day and including names, the the Bible names, Herod, names, Pontius Pilate, even for those of us that use the traditional, the creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Jesus names names and the Bible names names. And so as a minister of the word, I believe that we're called upon to name names too. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Reverend Heidi B. Newmark. She's been on our show before, and today she's here talking to us about her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Reverend Newmark is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church of Manhattan, and she's also the executive director and co-founder of Trinity Place Shelter for Homeless Queer Youth and Young Adults in Manhattan. And we're talking about the ways in which the work of the gospel tie in with our political moment. And we'll be digging into that more as our program continues. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Heidi Newmark. She's pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church of Manhattan, and she's executive director and co-founder of Trinity Place Shelter for Homeless queer youth, and young adults. Today we're discussing her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Well, in looking at your book, Sanctuary, you say something in passing there. You say, well, I'm told by my writing mentors that I should write every day in kind of 600-word chunks, but I find it hard to do that, and some days Everything in life gets in the way, and sometimes I can barely write 300 words. What I found amazing about this book as I was reading through it was how 
at the at the same time it felt to me i could completely see how it was written in short chunks sort of along the way i could see that in the in the grain of it if you will but also there was such a thematic connection for me how things flowed together and how you kept coming back to some of the same the same themes over and over again our culture, and you, you talked about this a little bit, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about this. Our culture is broken right now. It's broken around racism. It's broken around sexism. It's broken around transphobia. And we can find people like leaders who will exploit that brokenness, but it doesn't start with the leaders. And so let's get theological. As you have been in this ministry day in and day out, and as you have been laboring in the fields with those who are closest to some of the misery that we're talking about, where do you think that this brokenness continues to come from? And why is it so hard, despite the fact that we're living in the most wealthy nation in the world by some estimations, why is it still so hard for us to get at the heart of this brokenness? Well, that's that's a very deep question. And I wish I had a, a good answer or an easier answer to it, because then it might be it might be easier to transform and change. It's interesting in the Bible, when it talks about Herod and Herod's campaign of, of violence, it says Herod was afraid. And I do think that people are afraid of losing. If I give up something, I'm going to have less. If I lose part of my privilege as a white cisgender woman, no, then I'm going to, things are going to be terrible for me. I have to protect mine rather than seeing our fullness in our connection with one another. But where that fear comes from, I don't know. I think it's somewhat embedded in our human condition. We might, we might call it sin. But really, where all of this comes from, I don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I don't really know. You used a moment ago a word privilege, and that draws to mind a moment in your book where you, you mentioned reaching out to a colleague of yours, a person who is kind of a sounding board for you, but he's a young queer man, and he has chosen, if I'm remembering correctly, he's chosen to live in an area where he is more visible and more under threat. He doesn't live in a big city. He chooses instead to live in a rural area. And one of the things he says is, you know, I'm living here because in Manhattan, people have the privilege. And again, if I'm misremembering this, please correct me. But if I'm if I'm recalling, he says in Manhattan, people have the privilege of doing things like anti-racism training. Nobody in this rural area gets anti-racism training or gets the opportunity to do that. And so that's partly why he feels like he needs to be there to be a witness and to be a point of contact with an other for these people. And so I want to think about because you meditate on that in your book, Sanctuary, about what it means to have the privilege of being close to the access of this kind of dialogue, to be close to this kind of conversation. But I'd love for you to share a little bit of of that thinking with our listeners. Like, what does it mean to say that there's a privilege to be close to that kind of dialogue or to be close to to anti-racism work? And what are we to take away from that? Yes. and um, And I would just like to give a little shout out to my friend that you mentioned, uh, Jeremy Posadas. He recently, of course, uh, semesters are beginning in colleges, and he recently put on Facebook, I've returned to rural Texas to conspire with my students to eradicate rape culture. He teaches gender and sexuality, yes, in a very conservative area, and he's making a, a big difference there. But, you know, I and I obviously haven't that hasn't been the trajectory of my life. I think in terms of the privilege, for instance, of being in an area where there's multiple opportunities for anti-racism training and anti-racism, well, let's say anti-racism trainings, but people don't necessarily take advantage of it. Yes, there's an abundance of opportunity. There isn't necessarily an abundance of making use of that and allowing that to change one. And I've kind of felt drawn in two directions as a church. No no church and nobody can do everything. So on the one hand, yes, those who have more privilege help people to realize ways that that can be let go of that, use that, 
change that, change the work against the structures that have created that, but also be with and listen to and be led by the needs and the gifts of those who are most negatively impacted by these systems and structures, who have a lot to say and a lot to contribute. And and the church needs to not just be, oh, let's help these poor people. No, let's be changed by the gifts that these people bring and listen to their voices. I like that phrase so much, changed by the gifts. And in order to be changed by the gifts, we have to be proximate. We have to we have to allow ourselves to be in interaction. And you address this idea of proximity at many points in your book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. But one of the most poignant moments where you address this proximity or the lack of it has to do with the high-rise, high-cost housing that is going up in Manhattan as various neighborhoods are being bought up by outside speculators, some of them Chinese, some of them from the Trump company, some of them from other companies. And the buildings that they're building are buildings where there's a main lavish entrance for the high-paying residents, but there's another entrance around the side for other residents. Tell us about that other entrance around the side. What is going on there? So some uh, real estate developers, in order to get a tax break, even though they're they're multi-million and billionaires, if they build some inclusionary housing, which would be housing that would be more affordable uh, for lower income people, if they include a few of those apartments uh, or a certain percentage, but it's a very tiny percentage within their buildings, then they get a tax break. So the way that they're dealing with that in some cases has been, okay, we'll have some of these low income people, but they will not go in the same door with our high paying rent people. They will go in a side or back door, literally, and it's been called the poor doors. And in addition to the poor doors, these buildings, as you may imagine, have all kinds of amenities, uh, pools, uh, playrooms, spas, uh, all kinds of things like that. Well, the the people who are there as part of the inclusionary housing are not allowed to participate in any of those things. And in addition, part of our neighborhood had is required to have a certain amount of green space. Some of these buildings have been built over the green space, but no, the green space was public for anybody to enjoy. What they've done is made a garden on the top of the luxury building which of course nobody is allowed to use except the high rent renters or owners. And um, that counts as the green space. The city counts that. But yes, a poor door, a poor door. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is the Reverend Heidi B. Newmark. She's pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church of Manhattan, and she is executive director and co-founder of Trinity Place Shelter for Homeless Queer Youth and Young Adults. And we're talking today about her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. So just a moment ago, you were talking about this idea of the poor door of high-end housing in Manhattan that was taking advantage of the tax breaks and was building the building literally so that the lower-income residents who were allowed to be part of the building so that they could get the tax breaks were literally cordoned off from the entrance that the higher-paying residents used and were also cordoned off from the amenities and even the green space that prior to that had been public space. All of that is a very powerful image for me, but what really blew my mind was when you then connected that and you said, and you know, a lot of the churches today have poor doors as well. And I would really like it if you would unpack that for me, because it was a powerful moment in your book, Sanctuary, when I read that. Yes. Well, the reality is that a lot of churches have the fr- have a front door and a side door. And the front door is where the members of the church come in for worship and other activities. And then there's another door, often literally another door, where people might come in for uh, to access a food pantry or some other charity program. Now, 
I'm not against programs that provide emergency food and clothing and help for people, but we can be guilty of setting up a system where there's two groups of people and two doors and one group are the the givers and the other group are the takers and the community is just as divided as in these uh, luxury real estate buildings. So let me make sure that I've heard you correctly. So we have a church that is there and it's got a main entrance and that's where the people walk in for worship and they they come in in their Sunday best and maybe they're doing charity, but they're doing charity around the side of the building and, you, and you've just said it's created a, a distinction between the givers and the takers or the givers and the receivers. What sort of dynamic and theological problem does that create when you have a church that has that kind of two entrance approach where there's a where there's a, a door for the people in their Sunday best and a poor door around the side? What's the danger of that? It's dehumanizing. It is not relational. The, uh, Jesus is all about relating to people, seeing re- truly seeing people. And that's in the situation I described with the poor door. People are not seen. There isn't any real relationship. And and people are reduced to their needs, to their to their weakness, rather than seeing as equal human beings, partners, equal parts of the community. It's very dehumanizing. At your own church, Trinity Lutheran Church of Manhattan, and you talk about this throughout your book, Sanctuary, and in your work and, and, and other times that I've talked to you, it really seems as if you have worked hard to try and deconstruct that dehumanization. And, and there are points throughout the book where it's very clear that those who are participants in the church are participants in the church from sort of marginalized spaces of community or spaces of invisibility there in Manhattan, where they, they've otherwise been shoved to the sides, but at Trinity Lutheran Church in Manhattan, they can be recognized in their fullness. And in it, there's one wonderful thing that you say in the book where you're like, you know, the Talmud tells us that angels come before us saying, behold, behold, here's the image of God. And that's not just true for the rich, but that's true also for the homeless, the downtrodden, the transgender youth that you work with in the shelter. And one place where this really became concrete for me was the dried wax on the altar there at Trinity Lutheran Church. And I I would love it if you would share the story of why there's dried wax on that altar. There is a day in November, which is a day to protest violence against sex workers. And we were approached by an organization of sex workers that was looking for a space to hold this event, which was, I mean, it was not a a religious event per se, but it was a memorial for sex workers who'd been murdered in the past year that people had names for both in this, mostly from this country, but also from some other countries. And so, of course, no human being should be brutally murdered because of what they're doing. And so we we agree to this. And then I had been asked if we'd put a table up front because they were going to light candles, um, many, many votive candles for the dozens of names of people who had lost their lives, who had been murdered. And at the last minute, I I forgot it. I realized I forgot to make sure the table was up there and I was going to like run around and find a table. And I said, well, wait a minute, we have a table. (laughs) We have a table at the front of the church. It's the altar. And it's kind of a marble topped altar. And I said, you can, you can light the candles on the altar. And they were a little shocked by this, but I thought, why shouldn't they light the candles on the altar, remembering the lives of precious human beings, that that they have value, uh, that they matter, right, uh, right at the altar where, where Jesus poured out, you know, where we celebrate communion and remember Jesus giving his body and blood uh, for us because, you know, we mattered. So that happened. And then 
afterwards, I noticed that there was still, there was a little wax that had gotten spilled, you know, on that table. Oh, the other thing. Yeah. The other thing was, it was a beautiful thing to see the two women standing behind the altar in the place where I would usually stand lighting these candles as the names of the dead were called, you know, in a sense, they were presiding at the table. And I thought that is so much the gospel. That is so much the reversals where the first shall be last and the last shall be first that Jesus spoke about. And I think it's also what the church is called to live out so that people who have felt absolutely last, especially in the eyes of the church, are then in the place of privilege, because that is the gospel. You write, whenever I consider scraping the wax off, I stop myself because it testifies that two sex workers, 300 candles, and Jesus's own body and blood belong at the same table. And I'm Roman Catholic. That struck me because when I approached the altar there in my church, one thing that I know about every Roman Catholic altar is that it doesn't become an altar until a little fragment of a saint is embedded in it. So either a piece of bone or a fragment from clothing, there is some connection to someone who oftentimes has been tortured and killed in a grisly way or has died in the name of the Lord. And so for me, there's that physicality of connection in the Catholic tradition to what an altar does and where an altar gets its power. What I love about what you said there, that there's this testimony that two sex workers, 300 candles, and Jesus' own body all belong at the same table, is it feels to me like you're reaching for that same sense of connection, like something happened here that was human and important. It wasn't just clinical, and it wasn't just holy, holy. It was deeply human, and it had a body, and that body felt pain. And as I'm, as I'm making these connections, does that sound right to you, or would you say it in a different way? Absolutely. In fact, I wish I had thought of that Roman Catholic tradition <laughs> Because I would have written about it. No, you're absolutely correct. I mean, and Jesus, Jesus identified his body with the bodies of those who are most discarded. I mean, in in Matthew 25, you know, when you've did it to those considered the least of these, you did it to me. He identifies his body with those bodies. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Heidi B. Newmark. She's been on our show before. She's pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church of Manhattan, and she's also the co-founder and executive director of Trinity Place Shelter for Homeless Queer Youth and Young Adults. Today we're talking about her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you'd like to hear more of these conversations, please join us on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Today we're talking with Reverend Heidi B. Newmark. She's been on our show before. Uh, She is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church of Manhattan, and she's executive director and co-founder of Trinity Place Shelter for Homeless, Queer Youth, and Young Adults, also there in Manhattan. Today we're talking about her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. 
We have talked about this before when you've been a guest on the program, and this is very much at the heart of your book, Sanctuary, but your ministries there in Manhattan are designed in many ways to welcome and to incorporate and to give a sense of place and belonging and home to those who society has otherwise decided in many cases to throw into the margins or to throw out. And in particular, this has to do with homeless queer youth, transgender youth, those sorts of persons. And there are many stories here in your book, Sanctuary, that tell a little bit about the sufferings that they encounter and the ways in which they find, in other ways, a home at the shelter that you help to run. And I just want to make sure that my listeners understand what we're talking about here. So when a person, and you talk about this in the book, when a person is invited by a grandmother to go back and visit and then is beaten by the father because he, he is queer and then comes back to the shelter there at Trinity, and as soon as, as he walks through the door, he says, I'm so glad to be home. I think some listeners, some readers might say, but it's a homeless shelter. How can it feel like home? So help, help to paint the picture of what's going on here that makes this more than simply a temporary dwelling for homeless youth. Sure. And also, I, I, I want to say that these youth are much more than homeless and that they bring a lot of vision and resilience. And they teach the church a lot about how to be human and how to be a better Christian. But in terms of being home, almost all of the young people who come here have been rejected by their families. So they don't have a home. Their home has rejected them and told them many negative things about themselves. And it's really, it's not a big shelter. So that's intentional to really create a healing environment that is home-like, that is the kind of home that everybody should have, where you can grow and thrive to be who you want to be, not who others think you should be. And, And that should be true for all of us, although it isn't, but it should be. And so the young people experience that. We had one young person who was playing the piano and I came in one night when she was playing the piano and complimented her on the music. And she said, this is where I feel human. That's a terrible indictment that this is where she felt human, but it's also what we try, what we try to create and reflect a place where people who have been and who are dehumanized in so many ways can return to their humanity and then really help. I mean, who who are the real dehumanized people? It's the people who are controlled by hate and who can't recognize God's creativity in these young people. This was what was so profound for me. And that phrase that you just said, this is where I feel human. How many pastors, how many reverends, how many ministers would give their eye teeth to know that that was how congregants felt about their churches, that they came there with their brokenness to feel human again and to feel loved and to, and to walk into the threshold and say, I'm home. But so many churches today, at least in, in my experience, so many churches are not about the humanness. They're instead, they're about the artifice. They're about the show. They're about scrub yourself up and put on your best clothes and pretend like nothing is wrong because otherwise Jesus will be mad at you. And, I, and so it's profound to me that this is where these outcasts, these people who have been thrown out by communities, they feel community and they feel human here. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what churches are supposed to be doing? Uh, Yes, (laughs) that is what churches are supposed to be doing. I think it was one of the early church fathers, Arrhenius, said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive, or, you know, a human being fully alive is the glory of God. Yes, absolutely. Churches should be like that. Churches often are not like that. That's why we we started the shelter. We believed churches are guilty and responsible. Churches have caused this horrible situation of young people being cast out on the streets. It it's almost always for religious reasons. So if churches are causing this horrific thing, churches need to be doing something about it. And that's why we've been trying to do that. 
What strikes me, though, is that for a church to do that, it has to look very different than the kind of two-door church that we've been talking about. It has to be, in some ways, a one-door church or, or, a, or a church where all of the amenities that are there in the sanctuary are shared freely throughout the building. I mean, there's so many ways in which the kind of real estate and architectural metaphors that you're drawing upon in your book, Sanctuary, they apply all the way down theologically to what we're talking about, even to the name of the book itself, Sanctuary. And it may it might be useful for our listeners if we talk a little bit about what this word means, if we talk about what a sanctuary is in the Christian tradition. How does that resonate in our conversation? Well, in the Hebrew scriptures, a sanctuary city was a city where a person who was accused of a serious crime would be kept safe, that nobody, nobody could get to them. They would be safe there. And often, maybe they hadn't committed the crime Churches have had a history of being sanctuary in the, there was a sanctuary movement related to immigrants, particularly from refugees from El Salvador at one point. Churches have had a tradition of not just the sanctuary as a place of worship, but being a sanctuary that is a safe place for people. And sanctuary is, it's an ideological concept. In other words, this is going to be an ethic that our city will hold to. This will be an ethic that our church will hold to. This will be an ethic about how we build the building and how we share the resources within the building. This will be an ethic about how we we represent ourselves in the community and how we welcome people from the community. Like I, I see sanctuary working all the way sort of up and down that register. But one thing that really struck me was that your church, the Lutheran church, was one of the first, if not the first in America, to declare itself to be a sanctuary church and help my listeners understand what that in particular means with regard to, in particular, undocumented persons. It was saying that, you know, in the eyes of God, there are no undocumented people. People are people, and in the eyes of the church, there are no alien people. All people are human beings created in the image of God, and all people are welcome, and we will defend and protect people, including immigrants who are under such attack today. Now, how that plays out, how do we defend? How are we a sanctuary church? What does that entail? Uh, That, of course, can be worked out in countless, countless ways. You, in fact, say that in your book, Sanctuary, you say, you know, your denomination has taken this stand. Every congregation is going to find its own level with how that gets implemented. And so at your particular congregation there at Trinity Lutheran Church in Manhattan, it has taken a particular shape. And if you'd be willing to just quickly line out for my listeners what the shape of Sanctuary looks like at Trinity Lutheran, I think that would be helpful in our conversation. As you were saying, it's on many levels. Our shelter is a sanctuary for young people who have been kicked out of their homes and who are often abused on the streets. We give our space for workers who are organizing. There's restaurants near here that pay undocumented workers $3 an hour, which is against the law. If you hire someone, whether they're documented or not, you have to follow labor laws. They don't have a safe space to meet, to organize. They meet here. It's a sanctuary. We try to be a sanctuary for children, a safe place where children can come and do their homework and be nurtured in many ways. We have a Latina support group, women, many of whom have dealt with domestic violence issues. We we seek to be a sanctuary where they can be free and work together in that way. And of course, most of all, we have a sanctuary where, where we worship. The sanctuary is a holy space, but really all of these, you know, God's present in all these spaces and Jesus is present in all these spaces. So they're all holy and they're all part of our sanctuary. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Reverend Heidi B. Newmark about her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Well, you're talking about all these ways in which your church is a sanctuary and it's part of this larger stance that has been taken by the Lutheran denomination to be a sanctuary church. And I don't want to dwell on this too much, but there's a couple of points in your book where you sort of name the criticism 
the attack, the vitriol that you get as a result of taking this public stance. And so without going into the details of kind of what gets said, because I think listeners can probably imagine what the content is, I wonder what it is that you do when those moments come or when those moments of attack maybe come from you, for your congregation or against your church or against members of your church, how do you help to speak a word of hope how do you help to continue to encourage those who are on what Miles Horton would call the long haul? Because this is a long haul project that you're on here of trying to be a beacon of sanctuary. How do you maintain hope and resilience and encouragement in the midst of what are sometimes some pretty vicious attacks? Oh, uh, well, in terms of the attacks, you know, Jesus himself said, Blessed are the persecuted. I think. Our biggest source of hope is in Jesus, is in the gospel, is in the fact that, and this is a time of many dashed hopes for many people, but Jesus is one who also knew and experienced what it is to have dashed hopes, what it is to be frustrated, have failure, be persecuted, and yet he persevered, and oh, he, even, he even on the cross seemed to feel like giving up. But then we have Easter, and I think that that is our hope that in the end, life and love and truth will triumph. And we get sustenance through community. We, we, you can't do this. We can't, as a church, certainly, we can't you know, do this work alone. I don't think anyone can do the work alone. But for us, community comes through the church. Community comes around the altar, receiving Holy Communion and sharing community and those things being together. But, and it's not just even with our church community, we work closely with a synagogue near us. And that being together is what keeps hope alive with faith in the, in the resurrection for us. Well, and you mentioned the synagogue, and, and I'm aware that in the book Sanctuary, you talk at a couple of points about your longer lineage that goes not just in the Christian faith, but also in victims of the Shoah. Uh, you have you have ancestors who were Jewish and who were specifically targeted. And yeah. that leads me to think about one of the tweets, in, and as, as I said earlier in the show, the tweets and the voice of Donald Trump show up at various points in this book, Sanctuary. But there's one in particular where where there's this quotation from President Trump, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. And what struck me about that is when we're talking about your grandparents who were victims, your ancestors who were victims, when we talk about your experience down in Argentina where you studied for a year and where you lived amongst people who were at times under threat, when we talk about those in Manhattan or other places who are not allowed to go in the main door or are disappeared in various ways from civic life, we're talking about enforced invisibility. We're talking about not just the erasure of bodies, but the erasure of stories. And how do we help to recover, maintain, and preserve not just the bodies, but the stories? What ways do these narratives weave into your liturgies and into the work that you're doing there in Trinity Lutheran Church of Manhattan? Well, that's really the bread and butter of churches telling the story. I love to tell the story. Yes, lifting up those stories from invisibility. Sometimes there, there are many Bible stories that need to be lifted up from invisibility and the stories of people. People, And it takes intentionality. It takes intentionality of looking, delving into those biblical stories and listening and drawing out each other's stories, which of course requires trust and risk of sharing stories. But sharing those stories in sermons, sharing those stories in intentional times of talking with one another and bearing witness, speaking out, giving testimony, and also in informal times when people just sit together and share their stories. That's life-giving and absolutely essential. And I would say in places, you know, clearly this neighborhood in Manhattan is an extremely diverse community. It doesn't mean that people are not divided from one another and living often separate lives and, and are invisible to one another, which, which is why we work as a church to 
work towards beloved community. But even churches that are in more homogeneous areas can dig into the stories of their place. Why is it so homogeneous? What is the story there? Uh, who were the, I mean, the first people here were the Lenape people, but you know, who were the first people in those communities? I mean, there's lots of hidden stories, I would think, in every place, city, town, village in the country, that work of story. And, and for us as Christians, Jesus is part of the story, is in the story and sees. I mean, that's one of the, the story of Hagar, God sees, being seen by God. That's part of being humanized or human. That's so powerful, and thank you for, for that image, because it, it occurs to me that even the Romans tried to erase the story of Jesus, and the, the apostles were ready to have that story be erased, but it was the faith of, of Mary going to the tomb and being willing to hear a different story and to carry that story forward even in the face of ridicule. Like there, There's so much power in what you're talking about here in terms of the unearthing of stories. And I wonder, as, as we're talking now and, and reaching the end of our own conversation here, you, you've gathered these stories, you've told these stories, who do you hope will be the reader of a book like this? And what impact do you hope that a book like this will have on those readers? I hope that, well, in terms of who, of course, an author wants everybody to read read the book. I don't know who will be most drawn to read the book, but I hope that the book will be a source of hope, that they can see that in in very imperfect church with a relatively small church. Nonetheless, there's tremendous um, power to bring forth story, to be in communion, to build beloved community, uh, to resist evil and to rise up in hope and faith and love. And I hope that it's inspiring for others and that others who are going about that work or who long to be part of something like that can feel encouraged and accompanied and not alone. Well, Reverend Heidi B. Newmark, it, it's such a joy, both the time that I got a chance to sit down with you in person, and now, thanks to COVID, we're doing this over electronics. But uh, I'm so happy every time I get a chance to talk to you, because when I read your work, when I know about your ministry, it inspires me. It makes me feel more committed in my own attempts to de-invisibilize those who are pushed to the margins in my own communities. I want to thank you for the work that you have been doing and are continuing to do, but also thank you for taking the time in the midst of that work to write these stories down and to share them with readers and to have this conversation with my listeners today. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for helping this book in this time of COVID have a little extra visibility. I am really grateful for you and the work that you do. We've been speaking today with Reverend Heidi Newmark. She's pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Manhattan, and she's the co-founder and executive director of Trinity Place Shelter for Homeless, Queer Youth, and Young Adults. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.